0: Hello and welcome back to a completely new and fresh Mud Between Your Toes podcast. In the first 50 episodes, I gave you an interfusion of narrations directly from my book and the occasional conversations of Pete Wood. I hope you enjoyed them despite my amateur dramatics voiceover. In this new series, I aim to bring you new conversations from fascinating people around the world people who have a connection with Zimbabwe, albeit at times rather tenuous. I hope you find them informative, interesting, and above all, entertaining. Hello and welcome back. Alan Savory is a man whose career in politics, agriculture, and conservation has spanned some 60 years. Throughout his career, he has arguably been both revered and reviled in equal measures. He's the co-founder of the Savory Institute and is one of the world's leading voices in land degradation or desertification of the world's grasslands. He lives, quite literally, off the grid in a series of mud huts in Victoria Falls with his wife and business partner, Jodie Butterfield. So, Alan Savory, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Peter. Uh, Before we talk about your extraordinary ecology and conservation work, perhaps we can talk briefly about your early political career. I think it's safe to say, Mr. Savory, you were a bit of a firebrand. When I was a teenager, your name was often mentioned at the lunch table at my grandmother's in the 1970s, and my mum's side of the family were quite liberal and agreed with what you had to say, my father's side were vehemently opposed to you. I mean, you resigned from the Rhodesian front in protest over its racist policies and the handling of the war, and then in 1973, you famously stated If I had been born a black Rhodesian instead of a white Rhodesian, I would be your greatest terrorist. Obviously, with hindsight, it's a pity no one listened. Um, Because the reaction to the statement led to you being ousted from the the party, didn't it?
1: Well, like all these things, Peter, it's more complicated than that. I, I penetrated the Rhodesian front. I was a, you could almost call me an angry young army officer, seeing the stupidity that was going to lose us the country and produce the results we have today you know of going to military defeat over just racism and um, so i talked to sir roy valensky and pat bashford others who wanted me to come into politics and i said no uh, smith has destroyed all of you guys and he's you know going to destroy the country i'm going to penetrate his party and i did i joined the Rhodesian Front." Uh, being totally opposed to them, and within a month, I was in Parliament. And um, and then I worked from within to see if I could produce change. But I, I found, because uh, it was believed by many of us that that Smith was not the hothead. There were other hotheads, but I learned that Smith was the hothead. And um, when it was rumored that I was going to be the next cabinet appointment, i didn 't want to go any further with my deception now then then I to, at one of our caucus meetings, I told Smith and his entire cabinet that I had no confidence in them and would be crossing the floor and so I crossed the floor and reformed completely the old Rhodesia party that had been led by uh, Roy Valensky, who had become a friend by then and um, and eventually it was actually my own party when we had. Parties into the national unifying force. It was actually my own party that got me out of parliament and not Smith. But, um, and then shortly after that, I, I was into exile. But that statement you said, yes, I made it at a speech at Norton. And I said, I want my fellow white Rhodesians to think clearly why I would say this. And yes, I said, if I'd been born a black Rhodesian, I would be your most you know, aggressive terrorist, whatever. And then the next day, of course, there were big uh, billboards in Harare, try savory for treason and all this nonsense. Absolutely ridiculous. When I could go back to the country after exile and get back, the commonest comment I got from people just coming up to me in restaurants or whatever was, oh my God, we wish we'd listened. That was the commonest comment I got because today you've got exactly the result that we were predicting. There's a reason why Zimbabwe with the best education, one of the most advanced countries with the most peaceful people, uh, creative people, why we are the worst government in Africa today. And there's a reason for that and that's what we're talking about. Went to military defeat and so you've got a military government to this day.
0: Quite extraordinary. After you left politics, I uh, mean, the Bush War was still in full swing, wasn't it? So you formed a tracking unit that very interestingly became absorbed or integrated into the infamous, infamous Salu Scouts, didn't it?
1: Well, yeah, that, that, that's, there were three areas I was very active in. One was military. Um, and uh, yes, uh, we were the first army, as far as I know in the history of the world, that I actually army train trackers, etc. And And that, you can read the history of it. If there's a chapter in the book on the solo sort of scouts about the very early days, uh, which w- what we were doing was very secretive. And, um, and yes, I, I then uh, got permission at one point to um, recruit territorials in, and develop the tracker combat unit, uh, but again there was a long history there. First was guerrilla anti-terrorist units, Gar Two, that became Part Two police anti-terrorist units, and then the because um, I was in the earliest stages, I was training black and white police special branch and um, SAS in in very secretive guerrilla anti-terrorist groups. So again, that's, that's a long complex history, but it, it morphed ultimately into the SLU Scouts.
0: Wow, oh, that's so interesting. Um, so going forward a bit, Alan, obviously it's a very difficult subject, but you bring it up yourself. Um, all of us who have lived in sub-Saharan Africa have seen the destruction of the indigenous forests by herds of elephants. It's clearly a problem, but you were largely instrumental in the early days in the culling of large numbers of elephants based on the idea that overpopulation was destroying their habitat. Um, This was a terrible mistake on your behalf, wasn't it?
1: Well, it it was a mistake on the behalf of all scientists because I was just reflecting the scientific view that's still there today. In other words, if there's damage to land where animals are involved, it's always due to too many animals. That's been a belief for thousands of years. You can go back into ancient texts and see them blaming the nomads for causing the desert with their too many sheep, et cetera. That's taught in every university in the world today. And uh, I was merely reflecting that uh, when we saw the amount of elephant damage in the Luangwa, the Zambezi, et cetera. And so I did what all scientists do, and we very easily prove what we believe. And so I proved there were too many elephants, and then that was very, very controversial, so, and politically dynamite. So we had my work checked out, and Ray Smithers, uh, Oliver West, various uh, top scientists we had here, uh, were in a committee under Ray, they investigated all my work, they agreed with me, and we were all wrong. There weren't too many elephants, and we sh- you know, the government went ahead, not me, but the government went ahead and shot over 40,000 elephants, and it got worse. And just this last week, I've been dealing with another Zimbabwean, Ron Thompson, who was involved in that culling, and he's now advocating that Botswana should shoot 100,000 elephants that's just crazy. It got worse when we shot 40,000 and here are people who didn't learn at all, who want to shoot even more. Now that doesn't mean there isn't a problem. There's an enormous problem. And if you come here where I'm talking to you from, you know, at the Victoria Falls, we're surrounded by, I think it's a total of 36 national parks in this region and they are our best or worst depending on how you look at it examples of habitat destruction biodiversity loss uh, causing desertification causing climate change and national parks should never be examples of that but they are and that's under the exact same thinking that tragically scientists didn't learn you call you
0: you called it the saddest and greatest blunder of my life, and I'll have to live with this for the rest of my days.
1: Correct. Mm. Um, we, we're still living with it, and the thinking still hasn't changed.
0: I mean, it's extraordinary what you just said about Botswana, but, but it's safe to say that this is why you have since dedicated your life to solving the problem of this overgrazing and the degradation of our savannas and grasslands. Is that? Is that true?
1: Well, it is, but it's gone far further than that. When I began being very, very concerned in the early, well, about the mid 1950s, I became extremely concerned. And then it was the degradation of national parks that we were forming, that I was seeing. And then as I went up to Senegal and other countries and saw the extent of it, I realized it was not just wildlife, it was human habitat. And so I began to focus on that because poor land means poor people, social upheaval, unrest, violence, war. It's, it's a simple pattern. And so whether I was involved in the military aspects of it, the political aspects of it, or the scientific aspects of this, it was always to me the same issue. And I was just changing the hat I was wearing on a particular day, whether I was consulting internationally, or the next day dealing with my own ranches or the game ranching industry that we got going when we believed that livestock were the problem so so throughout whether it was political military or anything it was the same problem and then in the early from that early work here i eventually discovered we could not solve it with wildlife alone then i discovered that we absolutely had to use livestock and that i had been completely wrong because i had gone around the country absolutely condemning livestock more than any environmentalist does and i i found i was totally wrong i had to swallow my words and now learn how to manage livestock to stop the land degradation and we worked that out in the 1960s and it's still as successful as it was then but in the four years where I was in exile and couldn't get back here, all the many projects I had going with private ranchers, the advanced projects we ran, two of them in this country, all of them had failed to varying degrees. So when I looked at that and said, all right, we thought we were right, we were getting these great results, and now we see failure. Let me look at why that was, And again, I found the fault was my own. I I had looked at the land and believed we had to manage the land using the livestock because no technology imaginable could do it, fire couldn't do it, and there was no other human tool in human use except the idea of resting land. So if we couldn't do it with all of these and now using the livestock it was going wrong, what on earth were we going to do? And at that point, I realized that all of them, of the schemes, and there were many, um, that had gone wrong, and every one of them was going wrong. It was it was my fault, because I thought we could manage land. And in fact, you cannot manage land. Land is so tied to the culture of the people and to the economy. The only economy that can sustain any nation is based on the photosynthetic process green plants growing on regenerating soil so if you think about it it's like the hydrogen in water you can't manage the hydrogen it's become water once it bonds with oxygen and so although it sounds complicated we were able to make it very simple you have to manage the culture of the people the social issues, the environmental, and the economic issues as one. They cannot be managed separately. And so we discovered that from the work care, and then that's when the holistic framework developed, and we got that trial and error again, a lot of mistakes and errors, but by 1984, approximately, we had that working and we were training thousands of people, and literally that has been successful ever since, as long as people do it.
0: Um, Ellen, your TED talk in 2013, um, how to green the desert and reverse climate change, has attracted over seven million views, and it's not too surprising. I've watched it twice and i think it's absolutely fascinating but you say the number one enemy is the cow but the number one tool that can save mankind is the cow i mean obviously we we all we all know that methane gas produced by cattle is damaging the atmosphere so it's a very interesting statement
1: yeah you know people are blaming methane uh, you know for cattle but methane's there and if you don't have cattle and just termites eat the grass, you've still got methane. You know, it's, uh, this is, these are red herrings. So you've got people saying they need everybody needs to be vegan. You've got people saying the world's grasslands can't absorb the amount of carbon that is necessary. And you've got um, people talking about the methane. So I often say to, to folks, let's just take three assumptions that are completely wrong but let's take them as truths. Let's assume for a moment that every human became vegan. We never eat meat again. We, um, let's assume that the grasslands of the world can absorb absolutely no carbon at all. And let's assume that cattle and livestock put out 20 times the methane that they do. Now, those are all untrue things, but if you assume those as truths, My question to all the scientists in the world, including every Nobel laureate, would be now what are you going to do about global desertification and climate change? There's nothing you can do, because only livestock can enable us to address desertification on about two-thirds of the world's land
0: in fact you said that you said that grazing holistic grazing i should say can reduce carbon dioxide levels to pre-industrial levels in the span of 40 years
1: yeah i was quoting other people there that's that's uh, really me. okay yeah, I said, yeah if you look at it i said people who know far more than i do about carbon tell me and then i quoted those figures right okay i, I keep out of the carbon debate altogether because it's academic as I've just said, the carbon debate is completely academic, because you can't you can't solve the problem without cattle anyway.
0: I mean, it's it it was it, it, it was like a slap in the face when I saw the saw your speech. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and and is can we discuss slash and burn, um, and its relationship with desertification? You mentioned that burning one want- work. Well, perhaps you're quoting someone else but burning 1 hectare of grassland gives off more pollutants than 6000 cars and in africa alone every single year more than 1 billion hectares of grassland is burned and let's not we're not even talking about the amazon basin or southeast asia so yeah. so what's the alternative i mean you've already you said resting land doesn't necessarily work planting trees desalination what's the what's the alternative
1: well it, the solution is very simple the way to a solution is very simple if you just come back to absolute basic principles we are a tool using animal we cannot even drink water if i say to you peter drink some water now how would you do it you'd have um, to if you're not going to use if you're not going to use technology a pipe, a mug, a tap, a dam, you would have to go and find the nearest river and drink with your hands in your mouth. We cannot even drink water without a tool, okay? We cannot do anything without a tool. And so for for millions of years, we had the tool of technology for about a million years. And it started with sticks and stones. We could chip the stones and sharpen the sticks, but we couldn't change our environment. And then somewhere around about roughly a million years ago, we got the second tool. We learned how to use fire. And then a few thousand years after that, we learned how to make fire. Now we had two tools, technology, and that began to develop rapidly because we could melt the stones, go into the copper, the bronze, the Iron Age, and everything around you in the room you're in was made possible by fire. Without fire, you couldn't have made anything. The clothes you're wearing right now, couldn't have made them without fire. Okay, so for 99.9% of human existence, we had two tools, technology ever advancing to chemicals and computers and machines and so on, but technology, a technological artifact of the human mind and fire. Now, the only other idea that humans developed was about 10,000 years ago, we developed the idea of resting the environment to let it recover. The first ideas of conservation began to emerge with pastoralists moving their livestock onto a different bit of ground or crop farmers beginning to rotate crops. The idea began, and today that's in the conservation movement. So you've got three tools there, technology, fire, and conservation. And the point I'm making and keep making to all scientists and nobody is showing where I'm wrong, but we're not heeding it, is that with those three tools, it is simply impossible to address climate change.
0: So, so the movement and the bunching of herds of animals, um, you, you think is the answer? Because I do have a question. In the first year, for example, when you bring a herd of cattle onto a piece of barren land and you bunch it together, what, what's the cat, what are the cattle going to eat? Do you have to bring in food for the first year and then you move the cattle onto the next space?
1: I, well, actually, could
0: you explain the whole thing about bunching of herds of animals?
1: Well, let, let me uh, do so. First, it's not the answer. You said it's the answer. No, it's, that's what has to be done on about two thirds of the world's land, right? It, but not in humid environments. If you take the tropical forests of Brazil, there shouldn't be cattle in them. They, they wouldn't be there if people were managing holistically. That would be illegal. It's so damaging. So where it's appropriate, and the decisions are made holistically, socially, environmentally, economically, and cattle are or sheep or goats or camels, some animal is essential To address desertification, for example, then the the dilemma we faced here in Zimbabwe in the 1960s, when I realized that, was how the hell to do it? Because we'd had 10,000 years of extremely knowledgeable people, pastoralists. They knew more about their land, they're tied to their land, their livestock. That was their very culture, and they had created the great deserts. So we knew that bunching and moving the animals caused desertification. So that left me thinking, well, what the hell do we do? And then we looked at all the modern range science, fencing development, grazing systems, rotational grazing, etc., and that had accelerated desertification. So in this country in the 1960s, that's the position we were in. And nobody in the world knew how we could use livestock, that we had to use to reverse desertification. And as I mentioned in the TED talk, what I did then was I said, okay, I'm not gonna reinvent the wheel. This is very complicated. Bozanne, the French pasture scientist, had shown us that some sort of planning process had to be developed. I had tried his process and I'd fallen on my face here. It was more complicated here than in French pastures. I believed he was right though. And I said, all right, let me look around the world, who in any profession has developed planning processes to deal with very complicated changing situations, constantly changing, which is what we had. And I looked at businesses, and business schools and everything and they had wonderful planning processes but you had to have an mba or whatever it is to understand it a simple pastoralist wouldn't Uh, i looked at all the other professions and i looked at the army and it was logical because i was in the army i was heavily involved to just look at how had armies over centuries developed planning processes for immediate battlefield conditions where men are tired exhausted you've got to recruit them into the uh, army and train them quickly in times of war so soldiers had started with squares artillery on the left cavalry on the right whatever and bashed away at each other they don't do that today they have extremely extremely good planning processes so i simply took sandhurst we were part of the same British Army. I just took our Sandhurst officer training, our immediate battlefield. How do you do it? I looked at the technique they had developed and I said, That's simple. If the army can do that, we can do that. But the army had worked out how to do it for short periods. A battle lasts hours or days, not years. And so, with a pastoralist raising, We had to plan months ahead, sometimes a year ahead. How on earth could we do that? We could use the military technique of breaking it into simple little steps that can be taken one after the other, building on each other. That idea is easy to grasp. You can grasp it in 30 seconds. But how do you do that over a year When you've got numbers of animals, you've got many other problems, you've got a time dimension, you're really dealing with four dimensions. And then if you think about it, Peter, you can just put that on a chart. On a flat piece of paper, you can express at least four dimensions. So I just simply took a chart, the military planning, and it worked. worked immediately, and it's never, ever failed us. It's got at least 300 years' development behind it. And that's what I talked of in the TED Talk when I showed a child with one of the grazing charts.
0: The whole idea of bringing cattle onto some barren land, their urine will then water the land, their dung will fertilize the land, their hooves will break up the soil, which is a good thing, and then you move them on, and then that piece of land will look a lot better in the following year, am I correct?
1: Yes, and any gardener knows that. Peter, if you and I joined the old ladies in tennis shoes in the local garden club, and you had a bit of bare ground, what would they teach you? They would teach you if you've got a bit of bare ground, plants aren't gonna grow on it. Water's gonna run off it, water's gonna evaporate out of it, and they would teach you this. This was known when I was in a nappy as a child, centuries ago that if you've got a bit of bare ground you need to break and break that surface so seeds can get in and water can get in and air can get out over millions and millions of hectares in the world every year how do you do that you could do it with technology and people did they developed machines to do it but you've got to keep repeating it and machines use carbon uh, you know fuels so why not a hoof of an animal? People have been tracking animals for centuries because they break broken surfaces, particularly if they're bunched and and milling around. So we could learn that in a garden club. Now, the second thing you would learn is that if you've got bare soil, you need to put some mulch and litter on it to shade it a bit and control the temperature. And then more plants will grow and less water will come out of it. So if you've got standing dead grass, as we have all over this country, at the moment, I'm looking out at masses of dead grass standing as I talk to you. And that grass is dead for the year, and we've got to get it down on the ground. Now, we could use technology. We could burn it, but that exposes the soil. Technology becomes impractical because of the use of fossil fuels and the scale on which it's going to be done. And I know what we'll do we'll bring in the cattle and we'll just trample it down. So again, you see, it's, it's just basic common sense. And then at the garden club, they'd have taught you that if you've got bare soil and you're going to put some mulch and litter on it, plants will grow a lot better if you just put some dung and urine on it. Lo and behold, this is what livestock do. They trample and break bare surfaces. They trample litter to the ground to cover the soil and they provide dung and urine. So we use the livestock to do that in the planning process. Now, why do livestock cause damage? They cause damage because they're too long on the land, not because of their numbers. And once we discovered that, we could just say, okay, we've got to concentrate the animals to get the dung, the urine, the trampling, but we've got to keep moving them so that they never overgraze or overbrowse plants. So plants have got to be exposed to the animals for one, two, three days, not much more than that in the growing season. And now we don't bring those animals back onto those plants until those plants have recovered. So those principles, I've just said them to you and you've got them, there's there's nothing more to it. All you have to do now is work out how do you do that on ranches And farms and pastoralists, where you've got the culture, the society, the economy—all of these things to be brought into it, and so that just becomes a planning, good planning process. Uh,
0: The the whole planning thing—we'll get to that in a minute because you speak about that quite a lot. Um, Let's expand the topic to climate change in general. You recently spoke at length about the collapse of civilizations, and you said agriculture was largely to blame. Indeed, mainstream agriculture is the most destructive industry on the planet, exacerbated, I suppose, by chronic institutional stupidity. And you use institutional stupidity quite a lot. Can you expand on that?
1: Well, you've got two things here. Mainstream agriculture, let me expand on that briefly. If you use common sense, which humans have a lot of, but institutions don't, an organization is almost incapable of common sense but an individual can so as an individual now just think about agriculture even if you're a townsperson should agriculture be based on the biological sciences or on something else and most people will say well clearly on the biological sciences now if you look at mainstream agriculture In the world, what is it based on? It's based on chemistry, which is not the biological sciences, and it's based on marketing technology. So you've got marketing of technology and chemistry as the basis for mainstream agriculture. So there's no surprise to the fact that if you just take one statistic alone, the production of dead and eroding soil, the United States Uh, has led this and the world figure is much like the united states figure if you look at the united states and you ask anybody in america what is america's greatest export they will tell you it's grain or it's timber or it's machinery or it's whatever they'll give you a whole lot of things no the greatest export from the united states every year is dead eroding soil that's because of mainstream agriculture, essentially. So that, that amount of eroding soil, if you look at the global figure, it's equal to 20 times as much dead eroding soil from agriculture as food we need for every human alive today. That is a terrifying statistic because institutions, organizations Universities, governments, environmental organisations—all of these have based agriculture essentially on technology, uh, te- marketing of technology and chemistry. So that—that's, I hope, just explains the agricultural one very simply. We have little option if we're serious about future generations, except to return to basing agriculture. On the biological sciences. Now, if you look at the institutional thing that you asked about, um, you know, you and I and everybody listening to this can make individual choices. So, we can decide to change a light bulb, use a different kind, or ride a bicycle to work, or walk to work, uh, do whatever we want to, to help global climate change, etc. But to deal with agriculture, climate change, desertification, megafires, any of these issues, we have to do it through organizations. Humans have to have organizations. We have them for good reason. They're our most efficient way of doing things. They're our most efficient way of using capital, sharing things, et cetera. All right, so we have to act through institutions. Now, because of how complexity operates, social, environmental, etc. complex systems, because of how that operates, the moment we form an organization, it takes on a life of its own. And a human organization, if you read the research and observe, does not behave like a human being behaves. A human behaves differently now we do not if an organization murders thousands of people we never hold anybody accountable nobody is executed if an individual murders one person it leads to a death sentence etc if we look at organizations they always reflect the prevailing views of the society in which they're formed that's that's natural so Society believes in technology. Society believes in that. There's no jar, nothing counterintuitive there. So look at any organization you like and you'll see they tend to have the latest technology, the latest cars outside, the latest computers, software, you name it, they're using the latest. Right now, when a new counterintuitive paradigm-shifting idea or concept emerges, and that happens very seldom. It's happened very few times. But when a totally new paradigm-shifting idea emerges, how do institutions behave? They lead the ridicule and rejection. And it's never been otherwise. And that does not change. The research shows us But that does not change until the view of society changes. And only when society's view change, then institutions change. Now, if you want to look at some examples uh, of that, of institutions not behaving like we do, I mentioned the common sense one earlier. You could ask almost anybody, let's say in America, um, ask a nurse, a child, a sportsman, a fisherman, does it make sense for America to produce coal and oil to grow corn to produce fuel for vehicles? And every normal human would say, that doesn't make sense. That's stupid. Why does America do it? Why are thousands of scientists behind that and doing that in organizations? That's an example of what I'm talking about. The other thing, that problem we have with our institutions, and nobody's to blame for this, it's just how complexity operates, is when you look at uh, an individual can much more easily say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. That is very difficult, almost bordering on impossible for organizations to do. What they tend to do is to circle the wagons and protect the organization even if it means going against their very mission. And the, the example I often use of that is you've got millions of wonderful people in the Catholic Church, incredibly good people. The Church has been in existence for a long time, and they have known about pedophile priests for centuries. But they protected the Church, protected the priests, went against their very mission to protect the innocent, the young, the children, etc and nobody there was being bad. It's just how institutions behave. So when you've got these sort of um, problems, lack of common sense, circling the wagon, going against their very mission, and, um, and so on, it's, you can realize then the dilemma we face as, as humans because we've got to operate to save civilization for future generations, et cetera. We cannot do it as individuals. We have to do it through organizations. They're our most efficient way. However, we've got these so-called wicked problems of organizations and somehow we need to deal with those and almost nobody in the world is talking about it even.
0: So, so, Alan then, can ordinary people change institutional stupidity? Take Greta Thunberg, for example.
1: The only people who can is ordinary people. In other words, ordinary people can be shifting knowledge around, sharing knowledge, learning, 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 gradually changing their view. When enough ordinary people say have changed their view, then institutions can change. And I have not been able to find a single case in the history of the world where an institution has changed ahead of public view, when it's truly new information that's involved. So individuals are the only people who can lead to change, but the policies that have to change can only be formed by organizations. So let me recap that individuals can't develop policy to address climate change or COVID 19 or whatever institutions do that but institutions cannot accept new paradigm shifting ideas until the public virtually obliges it or forces it that's the catch-22 situation the world is facing at the moment
0: Wow absolutely incredible I mean um, Alan Quite rightly, you've won some awards. You, Australia honoured you with the Banksia International Award for the person doing the most for the environment on a global scale. And uh, you also won the Buckminster Fuller Challenge, an annual international design competition, uh, awarding hundred thousand U.S. dollars To support the development and implementation of a strategy that has significant potential to solve humanity's most pressing problems big words indeed
1: well um, you know that uh, the australian banks here award yes i i got that it's it's i got that and i got a, a little plaque for integrity and science from a very respected organization those are the only awards i've had that buckminster fuller one was for this Africa Center where I am now. Uh, they got it, the, the, the organization that I founded, and I'm chairman of it. That wasn't an individual award.
0: Could you tell us about the Africa Center?
1: Well, the, the Africa Center is, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the political situation and so on. I had my main home was here near the Victoria Falls. It was a 45,000-acre ranch I had, And I had bought it from the government as state land. And then knowing its value, because I had such a diversity of of wildlife on it, I willed it back to the nation. So it would go back to the nation as a national park on my death. Um, For various reasons, the government was acting against me and trying to stop private research in wildlife, etc. And they took that land, and actually made a law so they could, and I lost that, and in, and many people here lost their land to try to cover up the, the, that event. That's a three-hour debate in Parliament. You can read it in the Hansards of, of the Zimbabwean Parliament. Now, when I came back after the war, I still had two other properties when I could come back from exile. One, 300 miles to the south in Matopos Hills I sold to the government to settle people on. And then I had this property here. And it, it's relatively small. Uh, it was only about, uh, I think, 15,000 acres at the time. Uh, that, and what I decided to do with this property was to donate it for the good of the country uh, to, for the benefit of all the people of, of Africa. So that's why it's called the Africa Center for Holistic Management, and we, what happened is I was able eventually to work out how to do that by forming a trust. So there's a trust here that owns this land and that the trustees are the five chiefs of the area. And then they're replaced as they die by the next chiefs. And then for my life and my wife's life, we're trustees as well. And then that trust charges a non-profit organization, the Africa Center for Holistic Management with the management of the land, the wildlife, et cetera. And so we have a training entity here. And people, I think, from, well, over 30 countries have come here for training. And now we've got about 50 locally led and locally managed holistic management hubs on six continents all modeled on this. But uh, so that's what it is. And uh, it's it's great fun to uh, be here and, live here amongst the wildlife and we're, we just do an awful lot of training of people here on uh, how to manage holistically
0: i um, mean and not surprisingly you've been praised by prince charles and and you and your wife jody butterfield have written at least six books um not to mention numerous articles um so what comes now do you feel positive about the future of our, of our planet
1: uh that's a, a difficult one. yeah we've we've only written the really the textbooks and the handbooks and it's in the third edition when you ask about the future one of the things that gives me most hope is that i read a survey a while back which said that the young generation uh, coming up now that a higher percentage of them want to live a truly meaningful life than ever before Previous generations apparently were more interested in money, power, position, etc. Um, and I'm really heartened if if young people want to live a truly meaningful life, we might see a chance, a change. I'm, um, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, the young people. They they are so right to to protest and demand change. But what change are they demanding? More of the same, because unless there is a serious attempt to address the cause of climate change we're offering the young people no hope of anything but a very grim future now that's my worry if we can get um, the world leaders to focus on the cause of climate change there's great hope if we don't focus on the cause again just come back to common sense if you've got a problem and you address the symptoms and you don't address the cause, your chance of failure is 100%. Wow, That's a simple message to the word. Now, what is causing climate change? If you asked your audience listening to this, you asked almost anybody in the world, you'll be told livestock is causing it and coal and oil are causing it. If you can now fall back to common sense, you would say, hang on, those are resources. They're going to be needed for centuries to come. How on earth can a resource cause a problem? If you listened to the consensus of scientists in the world today, Peter, I think we've got almost complete consensus among scientists that humans, human actions, are causing climate change. All right, now, if you take that statement, what does it mean? It means that humans are causing climate change by the way they manage resources and develop policies. There's no other way that humans can cause climate change except by how they manage resources. And we manage resources every day in our farms and on our land and in our fisheries and oceans and so on and we manage resources tremendously through policies. So, so if we just take common sense once more, you've got nearly 100% agreement by scientists that humans are causing climate change. If you just use common sense, you say, well, h- how do they do that? Well, it's how they manage resources through daily management and policies right so that now to my logic is unarguable so if that is unarguable why isn't anybody in the world talking about that about management all we're doing when we go to successive cop meetings there've been 25 of them you get confusion and chaos confusion and chaos and about every 10 years you get sustainable development goals developed and about 10 years later, we develop them again in a worse situation. And we just keep repeating this pattern. And if you look at all the uh, conference of parties you know about climate change, they, they, it, in the last 20, 25, it just ended in chaos. And that just keeps happening. So I'm optimistic about the future if the Greta Thunbergs of the world and the young people start saying, hang on, Let's look at the cause of climate change. Otherwise, we have no hope. I don't know how to bring that about.
0: Mm. Alan, it's incredible how quickly the time goes. Uh, So briefly, before we go, can you tell us about your home in Victoria Falls? I watched a fabulous documentary about it. You're quite literally off the grid, which is a fantastic thing in Zimbabwe, I suspect.
1: Yeah, you know, we're just here and I'm I'm sitting talking to you in my Mapani pole and mud uh, building with that roof, cross that roof. And I don't have any door. I've got a door on this one, but uh, I'm just looking out of the front, which is all open. Uh, So it's pretty cold in winter. And yes, I'm talking to you on a computer because I've got four batteries next to me here and four solar panels outside. that's it's it's a wonderful way to live it's quite mostly i I just love it that i'm listening looking at the game so as i've been talking to you i've been watching water uh, bushbuck a male and a female and a young one coming to water just 50 yards from me while i'm talking to you
0: ah very lucky you're very lucky if anyone wants to find out more about alan's work you can simply log on to youtube and type in alan savory And likewise, if you want to listen to the TED talk, just type in Alan Savory. Um, They're definitely worth listening to. Um, Alan, we're actually out of time. Um, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and sharing your story, which I strongly suspect we will continue hearing about for many years to come.
1: Well, I, I hope so, but I'm I'm getting a bit old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the story will continue, Alan.
1: Oh, that will, sure. I'll probably go quicker once I'm gone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very oh, much for joining me from Vic Falls.
1: Okay, thank you, Peter. Enjoy yourself there in Hong Kong.
0: <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> well, that was Alan Savory. And what a life, what a fascinating career. Now, as everyone knows, times are tough, particularly during COVID-19, and no more so than in Zimbabwe. The Africa Centre for Holistic Management, or ACHM, needs your help. In Zimbabwe, a small donation goes a long way. So please dig deep. Simply go to their website, www.africacentreforholisticmanagement.org where you can find out more about the work Alan and Jody does and how you can make a donation. If we want to maintain the fragile watersheds, wildlife habitats and croplands globally, your help is vital. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me and remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. Goodbye.